At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. One of the things that's pretty prominent in our culture is that we love happy endings. We love the stories that tend to end in happily ever after. And if you want confirmation of this, you have to look no further than the American cinema. As the majority of movies that we encounter in some way, shape, or form end with some sort of happy ending. Now, this wasn't actually always the case in American cinema. This was actually a major change that took place in the late 30s and early 40s. Coming off the heels of the Great Depression, many Hollywood executives at the time felt like people would not be interested to go to the movies to hear stories that ended in sadness or lament or problems or issues. And so they began to emphasize films that ended with happy endings. One article that I read from this week from the BBC entitled Why the Obsession with Happy Endings marked how even during that time, adaptations of classic books began to be changed so that they would end happily. Great stories like Frankenstein or The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which end not in triumph but in tragedy, were adapted and changed during that time in order that the couple lives happily ever after and things end on a positive note. This began to take root and has shaped our movie culture for the last 70 plus years or so, so much so now that it is assumed when you go see a movie that it's going to have a nice conclusion and you're going to feel happy watching it. So much so that when a movie doesn't end happily, it's almost disorienting for us. I remember a few years ago, uh, my daughter and I, who are big Marvel movie fans, went and saw Avengers Infinity Infinity Wars, and if you haven't uh, seen that movie, um, and I won't ruin it for you, but it just doesn't end happy, just just so you know. It does not end happy at the end. And I remember watching the movie and like walk, because I'd watched a lot of Marvel movies up to this point, because there was like 50 billion of them until we got to that one, but I remember walking out of the theater feeling like, like I was like dissatisfied. Like I was, I was like, what? what is happening? I'm like pulling out my phone, like when's the next movie coming out? Like this can't be the end of the story, right? Like there's got to be some redemption, some next, like I got to wait another year and a half. Like what is the, like it was so disorienting to leave a movie theater with a movie ending on a sour note that I like couldn't even process it in my my brain. Now the the problem is with our kind of cultural reality of happy endings is that you and I know that real life doesn't always end with happy endings. That oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where we're struggling and it doesn't feel like the end of that thing is a nice place where everything gets wrapped up in a perfect story and we live happily ever after. That the things that bring us to those places of lament, like we've been talking about those series, don't always end on that positive note like we want them to. And yet, I think sometimes if we're not careful, the Hollywood kind of happy ending can influence our faith. 
And that even within American Christianity, there's kind of this idea that if we follow God, everything should just work out well. And it's taken such root that when happy endings don't come, when the moment of struggle ends or seems to come to an end that doesn't end in triumph, we don't even know how to relate to God in those moments. Like, how do we pray? How do we engage God when we're not even sure what's next, or the ending just feels bleak. Well, I think this is where, again, the helpful role of lament comes within our spiritual journey, because lament teaches us how to pray when we feel like we're at the end, and it just doesn't seem very happy. Today, as we come to the end of the book of Lamentations, it does not end with a happy ending. In fact, it ends with a tension. Look at the last four lines of the book, in, starting in verse 21. It says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Throughout the book, the author of Lamentations has wrestled with the reality of what's happened to Jerusalem and the nation of Judah on the heels of the Babylonian invasion in 587 AD that left the city and the nation in utter destruction. And now as he comes to the end of his wrestling through these five poems in the book of Lamentations, he ends with attention. While he prays for God to restore, there's almost a question mark with that. Unless we're still in that place, God, of judgment that we've experienced because of our sin. This book doesn't tie up all the loose ends together, give us a neat, clean ending, and say, happily ever after. No, it ends in that tension. And you might ask yourself, why? Why end in that tension? Well, remember, the point of Lamentations, and part of its goal, is to teach us how to relate to God in the midst of our pain, in the most devastating moments of life. It's instructing us on how we can relate to God when things are at their worst and the tension just seems to be lingering. And so the prophet ends the book in the tension, but what he ends with is actually a prayer in the midst of that tension. The last chapter of Lamentations is a prayer written for the community to pray out of their experience of devastation you actually see a major shift that takes place in the book. And I've been talking a little bit throughout the series on the structure of Lamentations. It's a series of five poems. Three of those poems, chapters 1, 2, and 4, are acrostic poems that follow the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They all begin with the same word, how. The middle poem, chapter 3, is an emphasis on that where it's a series of three lines repeating following the acrostic style. But now when we get to the end of the book in chapter 5, the author completely abandons the acrostic structure. While he still has 22 lines, they don't follow any of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The poetic style is much more short and punchy, and it's written in the form of a prayer. What the author wants to do is end and give the community a place of how they can pray to God in the midst of the tension of not experiencing the happy ending that they were hoping for. And it's meant to help us. 
when we're in those moments. Maybe you're in a moment of devastation this morning. Maybe you've been in that moment. Maybe at some point in your life, you will hit that moment. If you haven't yet, you probably just haven't lived long enough. But if you ever find yourself where you don't know how to pray because the struggle seems so great and the devastation seems so hurtful, then the author of Lamentations wants to help you. He wants to give you three ways or three things that you can pray and engage God with in those moments. You see the first prayer come right away at the very beginning of chapter 5. Look at it with me. He begins this way. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. So while previously the author has began many chapters with that word echad, how, which is a statement and a question of shock and outrage at what has happened in Jerusalem, he now in the last chapter turns to the mode of prayer and he begins to call out to God and ask him to remember. See, one of the things that we need to pray when we're in the moments of lament, when we're in those places of devastation, is to pray for God to remember. Now, the call for God to remember is not because God has forgotten something. One of the truths that we see revealed in Scripture is that our God is all-knowing. He knows past, present, and future all at the same time. It isn't like God has some piece of information that he just somehow put in the back of his mind and forgot about. No, the call to remember is a call for God to act. It's a call for him to move. Christopher Wright, an Old Testament scholar, says this, When God remembers, it is not because God has forgotten. Rather, it means that God will now take action on the matter he chooses to remember. It's a call for focus and emphasis to God to move on behalf of the one crying out. And it's rooted in the Hebrew thought out of the Exodus narrative. When God's people were originally enslaved in Egypt, we see them calling out and groaning because of their slavery. And in Exodus 2.24, it says this, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And we know in that story, God then moves to rescue them out of Egypt and to bring him into the promised land. The cry then of lamentations is to say, God, if you did that in the past, will you remember us again? Surely if you moved on our behalf before, now that we are in this place, even under your judgment, you will remember your covenant and you will move. It's a call for God to see and to move. The author highlights it. See our disgrace. Look upon us. Because if you see the devastation we're experiencing, then our belief is that you will move on our behalf. And so the author spends the next 17 verses of his prayer lamenting to God the reality of their plight and their devastation. Listen as he calls out to God to remember and see. He begins by lamenting their disgrace. Look at verse 2. He says, Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. The inheritance for the nation was the land, and now the land has been turned over to a foreign occupier. 
We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. Not only have they lost their inheritance, they've experienced the loss of intimate relationship with their God and liken their plight to orphans. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. They lament the disgrace of their suffering, that they have to pay to use their own resources. That literally the oppressors are upon their neck and that they're suffering for the generational sin of their fathers that had abandoned God. But not only do they lament their disgrace, they continue and lament their enslavement. Look at verse 8. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The author describes how they have reached this low point in their social status, and they're now enslaved under Babylon, suffering the personal abuse of their captors. So much so that he laments what has happened to their women, to their princes, to their young men. And because of it, it's left them in a devastating place of estrangement and sorrow. He continues, the old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head, woe to us for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. Their suffering is so great that their celebrations are gone. Their joy has ceased. And then he brims to the pinnacle moment and the reality of their plight in verse 18. For Mount Zion, the reference to Jerusalem, which lies desolate, jackals prowl it. The reality of their situation is that their prize city is done for and now lies in ruins. This one verse encapsulates so much of the reality of what they have experienced. In fact, again, Wright gives us great commentary here where he says, one verse, only seven Hebrew words, but Lamentations 5.18 sums up the catastrophe of this whole book that has told the death knell of Israel's land, Israel's city, Israel's king, Israel's temple, Israel's faith, Israel itself as the covenant people of Yahweh, all collapsed, all ended, to all observers, all gone. And so the call to remember and for God to remember comes out of this deep place of lament and pain and devastation. And the author rehearses it before God, calling for him to see and remember. And I think what it reminds us of is that sometimes in our prayer, when we're in those places of suffering, that our prayer and call to God to remember is a rehearsal of the suffering and plight that we experience. We need, and have talked about this, but need to continue, we need to be okay rehearsing the reality of our pain before God. Lament is important because we are prone to cover our pain, to mask it, to try to move on, to minimize it, to get to the happy ending as quickly as possible. But that is not what the author does here in his prayer. He spends 18 verses rehearsing 
the reality of the devastation that they have experienced and calls out to God to say, do you see and remember what we have experienced? Complaint is such an important part of lament, and we have to continue to be okay with it. And I think, sadly, the reality is that many times our Christian culture kind of has inadvertently taught us that we can't complain before God. That genuine faith doesn't involve these moments of rehearsing our pain before him and asking him to remember where we're at. I remember experiencing this just a few months ago when I was studying and preparing for this series and I was working actually through Lamentations 3 and I realized how much the author really cries out to God out of his pain and I realized that there were just some things in my life from my past that I had just never taken time to lament before God, to really cry out to him and say, God, why? How? And so I decided one day that um, I was going to uh, go out on my back porch my wife was gone for the evening, my kids were in bed, and I was just going to sit there and I was going to complain to God. So I was like, all right. So I sat down and I started to pray. And about three sentences in, I found myself going like, but I trust you, God. And I, I tried a little more and I was like, but, but I know you're good. And what I realized as I kept praying was that every time I started to get uncomfortable with the reality of my experience, I would turn to some cliche verse, some cliche knowledge that I knew to kind of like cover it up. Because I was uncomfortable actually being raw with God, with my pain and emotion. And I think many of us, especially if we've grown up in the church, have felt that. That somehow faith means I can't be that real. I can't be that honest. I can't be that raw with the Lord. And I realized that I had an issue complaining to God. And I knew that I needed to work through this. So I decided that I was going to take a retreat to just spend time to go out and lament. So some friends of ours have a camper in the middle of the woods on 13 acres in the middle of nowhere that I was just going to go sit for 36 hours by myself. And I took my little Lamentations journal. Some of you maybe have grabbed those we had at the beginning of the series. And I decided to lament these things in my life. And I began to write out my complaints to the Lord, and I began to feel that familiar sense of uncomfort rise up in my heart, and I felt like God was like, no, be honest with me about what you feel about these things. Cry out to me, and so I wrote some more, and then I felt at one point God said, that's not what you really want to say. Just say what you feel, and so I wrote down in my journal in that moment what I really felt about these situations, and I won't share it with you because I want to keep my job, but I really just had a raw moment with the Lord. And then God just, in that moment, ministered to my heart and said, okay, now sit in it. Sit in it. Oh, it was so hard. I like literally was like uncomfortable with it. Like I wanted to get to that point where it's like, oh, but, but I know, I know all the head knowledge. I know all the truth. I know the Bible verses. But God said, I'm not interested in you just telling me what you know. I'm interested in you inviting me into the reality of your pain and to just sit in that moment and complain and ask me to see your disgrace and your moments. It's part of the journey. If we don't learn to be comfortable with that reality and crying out to God, we won't learn to lament and experience what he actually wants to do in ministering into those deep places. Be careful of putting band-aids, Christian band-aids, over deep wounds. 
They don't solve the problem. They might cover it up and mask it, but if you don't let God work deep into those moments of pain, you won't experience the healing that you desire. Don't settle for knick-knack Christianity, which slaps a Bible verse that's familiar on whatever thing we can so we can cover up the pain and reality of our suffering. We have it. We know it, right? We know verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know that verse is born out of Paul's wrestling with his contentment in extreme poverty? It has nothing to do with dunking a basketball. It has a cry that says, in the worst moments of life, when I have nothing, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The reality of our lament is to call to God out of that pain, and as we do that, that's where God wants to meet us. If you are in that place of suffering, God wants to speak to you. He doesn't want you to just cover it. He doesn't want you to just run to a familiar Bible verse to feel, try to feel better for a moment. He wants you to hear his voice. He wants to speak to you in a deep place and minister to your soul. Yes, out of his word. I'm not knocking the Bible. But sometimes I think we use it to not be real and honest with God. Avoiding God in our pain doesn't work. And we have to invite him into those deep places. And so we pray for God to remember. And out of that, God then reminds us of the reason we pray for him to remember. Look what the author moves to in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. So why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? You see, we don't only pray for God to remember, but we pray because God reigns. The first petition in the chapter begins with the call of prayer for God to remember. But it's now in the second part, in his second address, he addresses the Lord directly, and it's the author now who remembers something. That although Mount Zion is destroyed, that although the temple is laid low, that although the nation has reached its devastating moment, God is still on his throne. And the author moves from the lowest point in Israel's nation to his eyes being drawn to the highest point in all the universe, the enduring throne of God. It's a repeated phrase throughout the Psalms that God's throne endures to all generations. It's a reminder that God rules over all space and all time, that he is sovereign over every minute, every atom, every moment in history, and that he's sovereign over our suffering as well. The root call for prayer that calls for God to remember comes out of the recognition of his sovereign rule. Because when you are in suffering and affliction, the reality that God is sovereign is your only hope. It's your foundation. It's the thing we need to be reminded of, that God is sovereign and is using all things, even our suffering, for his glorious purposes. If God is not sovereign, why pray? If God is not sovereign, then suffering is pointless and meaningless and purposeless. 
And that makes suffering even worse. Oftentimes, people critique Christians because they say, how can a good God allow such evil? And I always want to turn the question and say, if there is no God, then what purpose does suffering have? That to me is a much worse world to live in. To have no hope of redemption out of suffering? To think that the things that we face have no ultimate purpose in the world? Man, if that's actually true, then we should be the biggest hedonists on earth. We should live up life at the expense of other people. We should enjoy it while we can. And we should avoid suffering at all costs. If there's no meaning in suffering, then why not strive to avoid it? But you and I both know that is a hopeless message and one world that I don't want to live in. And the true reality of the fact of what our faith holds is that God is a God of redemption. That if God could purpose the suffering of his own son to bring redemption to all things, then he can use our suffering in his sovereignty to work in his plan of redemption. And therefore, suffering has meaning. And it's why we can pray and trust and why in that place we can still recognize the tension like the author does. Yes, God's throne rules and endures forever. But if that's the case, why do you forsake us? He's still asking the question. He's still wrestling with the tension. And that's okay. Prayer is the place where we hold the tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility together, and we cry out to him. John Moran tells the story of the theologian R.B. Kuyper, who one day was giving lectures at Calvin Seminary. And Kuyper used this illustration to describe the reality of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Kuyper said that he likened those things to two ropes that went through two holes in the ceiling and connected to a pulley that was unseen by the audience. And Kuiper said, if I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to both ropes simultaneously. If I cling to one and let go of the other, I will go down. He said, I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, his chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. You see, God's sovereignty doesn't just remove the tension, but prayer is the place where we hold those ropes in tension, where we recognize the sovereignty of God, but we're honest about our pain, where we ask those tough questions. Prayer is necessary in the place of devastation because it allows us to hold the tension deeply. Do you believe God is sovereign over your suffering? Again, Wright is helpful here. He says, it is not contradictory to believe on the one hand that God can and will ultimately bring deliverance and release, and yet on the other hand still cry out to him in pain, protest, and baffled impatience from the midst of present suffering, wondering how long rejection and anger will continue. Do you believe God's sovereign over your suffering, and do you pray like it? Because if you pray like it, you won't err towards fatalism 
And you won't err towards the idea that God is not in control. You will hold the tension that says, I trust that you're sovereign, but this is really hard and I don't understand this right now. So would you move? Would you see me? And then from that place, the author prays his final prayer of the text in verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. See, we pray for God to remember. And we pray because God reigns, but at the end of the day, we pray for God to restore. We pray for him to restore, to move on our behalf, out of our devastation. But notice what the author's prayer for and the order of how he prays for restoration. Look at 21 carefully. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. The prayer of the text is not that God would come to meet them where they're at. The prayer of the text is that God would bring them to the place where he is, that he would restore the relationship, that they would be brought back into his presence, because the author knows if that is true, then it will lead to the restoration of everything else. The prayer that we pray out of lament is a prayer for the restoration of God's presence with us and that from that place he will restore all things. To be restored is to be restored to God. And lament is the path that helps us take that journey. Restoration is the destination. That's where we're headed. But lament is the journey in which we pray and ask for that restoration for that hope of his presence for that hope of relationship to be back together that's what we're after i shared with you if you remember several weeks ago the parable that i used of the man who took the boat out into the ocean and experienced a great storm that left him lost and hurting and i talked about how out of that moment the man cries out to god in his pain and sees the big dipper which guides him to the north star which begins to direct his way home. And I use it as a parable to say how lament can lead us to that place of hope, to recognizing there's a path home and the journey home. But that moment isn't the end of that story. The hope ultimately is that there will be reunification, that he will make it to the shore, that he will be with his family and his loved ones. And that's the hope that we have in lament as well. That as we lament and see that hope that one day we will be brought back into restoration. Because relationship changes everything in the midst of suffering. If you know God in the midst of suffering, it changes everything. It's what we desire. The question we all ask in the midst of our deepest suffering is, am I alone? Have you rejected us? Our hearts cry out for relationship in the midst of suffering. One of the great reminders of this to me is the movie Castaway, if you've ever seen it with Tom Hanks, who's cast away on the island. He's so desperate for relationship, he makes his friend Wilson out of the volleyball. Because it's a reminder, we don't want to be alone. We'll literally create things to not feel alone. And when we're in the depth of suffering, that's our cry. Are we alone? But the reminder of the gospel and the journey of lament reminds us 
that we aren't ultimately alone. See, the thing we see time and again in this book is that lament brings us back to God. It brings us back to God. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a way back, that in Christ Jesus, God came and poured out his judgment and wrath on his son so that we could be restored in relationship ultimately to him. And that this is the good news of the gospel. That you and I, no matter what we face, can know God. That we can have relationship with him. And if we know him, man, that changes all of life, even the worst moments. So I'm out in the woods, and I'm sitting in this, like, nasty tension of feeling all this pain of complaining to God, and I'm just praying and asking and wrestling with the Lord. And at some point, God kind of ministers to my heart for a moment, and I sense the question of, Jacob, what do you think the goal of life is? Like, what is it that you're after? Is it comfort? Is it ease? Is it the happy ending? I felt deep within my soul a desire that I've had by God's grace for a long time. That the goal of life is to know him. We talk a lot about eternal life in the church. What is eternal life? Is that we get to live forever? Jesus actually tells us what eternal life is in John 17, 3 in his prayer. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The goal of life is that we get to know God. And I felt in that moment as I wrestled with the Lord, where he just said, if these moments of your life that were painful and hard led you to a place to know me deeper, was it worth it? Now, that's not an easy question to answer. But at some point, what resonates in our heart is to say, yes, that knowing you is the goal. And that if even in the midst of suffering, it led me to a place of deeper experience of God and a hope in his ultimate redemptive purposes, then yes. And suddenly there's meaning in those moments. You see, when we realize that what life is about is knowing God, being found in him, experiencing relationship with him that will last forever, then every moment, the high moments and the low moments, the best moments and the worst moments, come to have meaning in our journeys and come to have meaning in God's work in the world. It's why Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, he would say, indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything, not some things, not just the good things. Everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When you, go, when you know God, it changes everything. Knowing Christ, there's nothing greater. 
than to know him. And it's what lament ultimately is meant to do. It's a path that leads us back to God, that brings us to the place to say, you're my prize. You're the thing I'm after. You're what life is all about. It's the cry of Lamentations 3 that says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will have hope. That when Jesus is our goal, when he is our prize, when he is what everything about life is about, then there is deep meaning and presence, and that changes everything. And so my prayer out of this series is that you would embrace the journey of lament, that in those moments of devastation, whether you've been there, are there, will be there, that you will see Christ as the goal of everything, that to know him is worth it all, and that as you do that, God will show you his presence, his love, the meaning when things just don't seem so happy at the end. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thankful in this moment. I'm thankful that you are a God of presence. That because of Christ, And by your spirit, even now, we can know your presence. That you have restored us to yourself in Christ, and one day you will restore us fully and all creation in him. And so, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place. And I ask right now that you would begin to move to remind them that you are with them that you would lift their eyes to see that knowing Jesus is the goal and that we count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing him. So whether we're in that place of devastation this morning, God, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley, would you set that as our vision? Would you call us to that place? Would you make it our aim? Would you give us the faith to trust you and hold in tension the worst moments. Would you allow us to be honest? Help us to be real and true. Minister deeply into those wounds of our hearts. Let us experience your redemption in Christ, I pray. Even now, I ask that you would just move in this space, whether in this room online, that you would just work by your spirit in the hearts of each one of us now. I ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.